Well, I probably don't have to convince anyone that the news, the news has been a little tough lately. The things we see reported in our country from uh, shootings to random violence in New York City to gas prices, I mean, I don't have to continue. We see it all around us. As our society continues to sink deeper into ungodliness, sin will continue to have its corrosive effect on our culture. And the church itself, the church at large, is not immune to that. We also see hidden amongst the news stories of all those other things I mentioned, stories of pastors and other church leaders who have been convicted in sexual scandals or abuse or have stepped down. The church, the people of God, called to be set apart in holiness and Christ-likeness, then devolves into a place of abuse and pain and sin, did it have to end this way? I mean, in one sense, yes, because God is over all things and sovereign over all things. He stands indirectly behind sin and evil, and He's working to purify His church. But it also doesn't have to end this way because there's always room for repentance. There's always room to turn. There's always a time where we can choose to drop the mask of hypocrisy. We can come clean, and and the magic word again being repent, turn from that sin and turn to Jesus. There will be a time, though, when that is no longer available. Eventually, judgment will come. Evil will get away with nothing. We need to remember that. As dark as it gets out there and as as deep as the sin we see all around us, remember, church, evil will get away with nothing. God will not be mocked. And Jesus is now going to continue his offensive against the Pharisees and and the scribes for their failures, their sins of pride and hypocrisy. We have much to learn and much to get through this morning. Last week, we looked at the last of the three encounters that Jesus had with his opponents and how he escaped all of their traps. He escaped the trap of reductionism, if you recall. He escaped the trap of logical impossibility with them mocking the resurrection. He escaped the trap of legalism, asking him to identify the most important commandment. And we said last week that we are called to obey God in love by submitting to him as Lord. We also saw last week that Jesus had enough. He says, I'm tired of you asking me questions. Now I've got questions for you. He's going to turn the table on his opponents now. He's refuted them powerfully, and now, well, he's going to unload on them for 39 verses, as you just heard. And first, though, he sums up for the crowds and the disciples exactly what the basis of his assertions are. Look again with me at Matthew 23, just the first four verses. And Jesus said to the crowds and to his disciples, the scribes sit on Moses' seat. So practice and observe whatever they tell you, but not what they do. For they preach, but they do not practice. They tie up heavy burdens hard to bear, and they lay them on people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to move them with their finger. Scribes and Pharisees, he says, sit on the seat of Moses. Teachers at that time sat down to teach. And when they taught, they sat maybe in a seat uh, that was the seat of Moses. And the idea with the, the seat of Moses, but Moses, the law was given to Moses, and so therefore, anytime the teachers would speak, theoretically, they were speaking then what Moses spoke. They're, sp- they're speaking the law of God. I've got a little picture of what archaeologists have found from time to time. This is a, a replica at the site of Chorazin. Um, 
most archaeologists believe is they found them in a couple different sites. There was this special mysterious seat that they've dug up in synagogues that they found in the ruins, the seat of Moses maybe. And Jesus says something a little strange. He says, you know, they have the right. They've been put there. They have the right to be on the seat of Moses, and they're teaching you the law. So basically what's inferred is as far as they are teaching you the law, listen to them. When they get it right, listen to them. He says, but don't do what they do. He says, the problem is they don't practice what they preach. And that's a huge problem because how can you separate a teacher's life from what the teacher is saying? You can't. Verse 4 tells us that they tie up heavy burdens that they themselves won't bear, meaning you could see that, that picture kind of like a, um, the idea of a burden like Christian and Pilgrim's Progress, right? The burden that was on his back as he traveled through to try to get to the celestial city. The burden, the burden of not only sin, but then the Pharisees put on their backs the burden of all of this obedience to the 600 plus laws that they have invented. They place unreasonable expectations of obedience to their standards, yet they do not follow them themselves. Instead, Jesus says, they do all these deeds for show to be seen by others. And that includes the way that they dress. Look at verse 5. It says, they, they do all these deeds to be seen by others, for they make their phylacteries broad and their fringes long. And they love the place of honor at feasts and the best seats at the synagogues and the greetings in the marketplace and being called rabbi by others. And they wear what's called phylacteries, which was mentioned in Deuteronomy chapter 11, that's where that comes from, comes from part of the law. But what's really interesting about it, if we go there in context briefly, Deuteronomy chapter 11, verse 18, the word of the Lord says, you shall therefore lay up these words of mine in your heart and in your soul. Hold on to those things. And they, you shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. We can see the Lord instructing Israel to take this law into their hearts, to love it, to cherish, to, to obey it. You can hopefully see that what's said in Deuteronomy is actually a metaphor. It says you should, you, these things should be like frontlets before your eyes, meaning you should continually focus on the law of the Lord. It should be, it should be like, like for your arms and for your hands. It should be what you do. It should be something that you do, not just something that you hear. And so... What happened was tragically, and still continues to this day, Judaism and the Pharisees, it started all the way back then, take these things sadly, literally. And so you can see a picture even of what someone would look like today who would bind these things. You can't really see up top, but up top there's a little box and it's bound around his head and there's boxes on his arms. And inside those boxes are little scraps of the law written on paper. This was never meant to be taken literally. But yet, if you go to Israel today, you can see people at the Wailing Wall walking around with phylacteries taped to them. And Jesus says, the Pharisees are worse. You know, they have those boxes, but for a Pharisee, those boxes are far too small. I mean, people can't see those from across the room. Pharisees got to have the big, broad boxes. They made bigger boxes for people to see how spiritual they are. And the fringes of their robes you know, going back to the temple of the tabernacle and the temple, like, you know, you can't have little tiny fringes. Like, people, people need to see those things from across the room. So they made bigger phylacteries and they made bigger fringes for their garments so they could see how holy they were. 
The Pharisees continue to go a step further and just look at me. Look at how holy I am. They loved the place of honor at feasts and special seats at church and recognition in the marketplace as people greeted them. Is this all okay? Absolutely not. Look at verse 8. You are not to be called rabbi, for you have one teacher and you are all brothers. And call no man your father on earth, for you have one father who is in heaven. Neither be called instructors, for you have one instructor, the Christ. They love those titles. They love the title of rabbi and father and teacher. It's who they are. They've earned it. Sadly, I can remember an email with a colleague one time. As soon as he got his doctorate, he sent out an email and said, this is how you are to refer to me. It's like, okay. Wow. This, this is what Jesus is saying. The titles become their identity. Is Jesus laying down a blanket prohibition here against using these titles? One commentator says, the point is not that Christians can never use honorific titles, but they must not expect or demand them. In other words, the Pharisees used these titles as ego feeders. Like it was their right. Used to separate them from the common people. Just use my special title. I'm better than you are. I dress differently. I have more holy accessories. I mean, look at the size of my fringes, for crying out loud. I get respect and greetings and honor everywhere that I go, and I deserve it. You see where this is headed? Nowhere good. Look at verse 11. Jesus says, The greatest among you shall be your servant. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. And Jesus now laying out his arguments against the Pharisees. They're full of themselves. And Jesus has given his evidence and is now declaring exactly what the Pharisees are doing, and this is not the way it works in the kingdom of God. We've already covered this in chapter 18 when his disciples were bickering about who is greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And Jesus says, you want to see who's greatest? And he gets this little kid off the street and he brings him in. This kid is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Kids were not looked upon very well at that point. And Jesus says, I'm going to be like a child. Whoever wants to be great will be your servant. This is not the way it works in my kingdom. That's what he says. Jesus is instructing his followers that they should not emulate the pride and entitlement that the Pharisees were living out. Jesus says that we're not to be ruling over each other, rather be serving each other. Why? Well, for one thing, he said, whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. The humble are the greatest. However, those who seek to be the greatest, well, they shall be humbled. And so I'll say it this way, self-exaltation leads to humiliation. Self-exaltation leads to humiliation. This is not new territory for us. It's here in the passage again this morning, so it's worth a reminder. The context, of course, is the sinfulness of those who would pretend to be holier than thou, the sin of self-exaltation and its consequences. Anyone who has a title, who has a power of any kind, the temptation is what? That that power could go to your head. Of course, leaders in the church, pastors, elders, deacons, those of uh, any sort of leadership in the position of, in church are, are naturally maybe more inclined 
to the temptation of exalting their importance. Maybe some of us can even tell stories of churches where you felt people were exalting their importance over you, of leaders on a power trip. I pray that that never happens here at Highlands. I pray that we as leaders are always humble and your servants, but leaders, it is a sobering reminder for us all, isn't it? Humility is required in leadership. This also includes everyone, of course. No one escapes the conviction. We can all fall victim to pride. It comes in all shapes and sizes. Pride is the essence of thinking too much of ourselves. This can be out of arrogance, like, look at me, how great I am, but it could also be in seeking attention. Sometimes woe is me has just as much pride of, look at me, I'm so important. Why are we seeking attention? Where are we seeking attention? Where are we thinking we are more important than others? And are we aware of the warnings that come along with that? The Bible does not take it lightly. God's children are not supposed to have a prideful attitude. Proverbs is all over this. In 29, 23, one's pride will bring him low, but he who is lowly in spirit will obtain honor. And of course, famously, in Proverbs 16, 18, pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. Self-exaltation leads to humiliation. And Jesus is here to declare the Pharisees have been exalting themselves for far too long, and they are about to be humiliated. Our Old Testament reading this morning, I don't know if you caught it from Ezekiel. This is literally prophesying this moment where God says, I am against the shepherds for their failures of my people, and they're exalting themselves. They're twisting my law. It's a fulfillment, a prophetic fulfillment of the judgment of the shepherds of Israel. It was fulfilled when Israel went to Babylon in exile. It's going to be fulfilled again when Jesus rains down judgment upon the Pharisees as he is right now. And so buckle up because Jesus is about to go off. And first, just a little bit of maybe kind of setting this up. You, have, you probably have a section heading that says seven woes or the seven woes to the scribes and the Pharisees. Woe is a concept we're not really familiar with. We don't really say woe these days, W-O-E, just to make sure that's clear. It's an outburst of emotion. It's an announcement of a pending destruction, like when you catch one of your children maybe in the snack cabinet and you told them no more snacks for today, you can sneak up behind them and say, woe unto you, child. (laughs) Destruction is coming. You know that. We also say, woe is me, sometimes. Jesus is declaring woe on the Pharisees and the scribes. Why? He says that how many times? They're hypocrites. Hypocrite is an actor wearing a mask. He says one thing, but in reality lives another thing. Worse yet, the Pharisees are leading the people of God astray. They're blind guides, he says. Most commentators understand what's about to happen here, not as malicious intent but as a genuine misunderstanding. They genuinely think that this is what God would have them do, and they have been so deceived by their own pride and their, their own hypocrisy. The extent of strapping pieces of paper to their foreheads and to their arms. But they're terribly misled. The whole thing's gotten out of hand, and Jesus is here not only to save the people, but to declare judgment, and he does that by declaring woe on the Pharisees. And in an attempt to organize them, I'm going to group some of them together, and let's start with 13 through 15. There's two woes in here. But woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, 
For you shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces, for you neither enter yourselves nor allow those who would enter to go in. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you travel across sea and land to make a single proselyte. And when he becomes a proselyte, you make him twice as much of a child of hell as yourselves. First woe is the woe of false teaching. False teaching is literally shutting the door to the kingdom of God in people's faces. Why? It's false. There's one way into the kingdom. And if you're promoting another way, a false way, you are literally blocking people from getting into the kingdom. Not only that, others who hear their teaching then are led astray because they don't know the truth. Their disciples, called proselytes, right, are headed to hell just like they are. How do they do this? Well, first and foremost, by rejecting Jesus as the Messiah. They reject Jesus as the Messiah, and they continue to, and therefore, what? They're headed towards hell, and all of their disciples then are headed towards hell. They shut the door to the kingdom in people's faces by their rejection of Jesus as the Messiah. The first woe is the woe of false teaching. The second woe is the woe of traditionalism over God's glory. Look at verse 16, a big chunk. Woe to you blind guides who say, if anyone swears by the temple, it is nothing. But if anyone swears by the gold of the temple, he is bound by his oath. You blind fools, for which is greater, the gold or the temple that has made the gold sacred? And you say, if anyone swears by the altar, it's nothing. But if anyone swears by the gift on the altar, he is bound by his oath. You blind men, which is greater, the gift or the altar, which makes the gift sacred? So whoever swears by the altar swears by it and by everything on it. And whoever swears by the temple swears by it and him who dwells in it. And whoever swears by heaven swears by the throne of God and by him who sits upon it. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tithe mint and dill and cumin, and you've neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. You blind guides, straining out a gnat and swallowing a camel. There's a visual for you. What the Pharisees appeared to be doing was, was dealing with these little religious technicalities. They had these crazy things that they would do with oaths and say, well, well, okay, well, I didn't really swear that oath by the temple. Uh, I swear it by the gold of the temple or, or vice versa. You know, which one is supposed to work today? I didn't really swear by the altar. I swear by the, the gift on the altar. So therefore, uh, the oath is not good. It's, it's the first century equivalent of making a promise with your fingers crossed behind your back, maybe, if we can say that. They're trying to exploit a technicality. They're trying to say, no, well, no, 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 I didn't have to do that. I didn't have to keep my oath because of this or because of that. And it's all tradition. It's all things that have been set up in advance. And Jesus calls this nonsense. It's spiritual blindness. He says, you're missing the point. It's not the gold in the temple, but the glory of God in the temple. It's not the actual altar, but the sacrifice that's on the altar for the glory of God and dealing with sinful people like you. One can only assume of this, this made-up tradition of swearing by things that don't matter was a way for them to wiggle out of their word. And we see this also reflected in their theology of, of tithing. Tithing is a, a churchy word. It literally comes from the word for a tenth, meaning that as we get, 
as we, as we have the brains that God gives us to go to work and the bodies to get there and the resources and all that, God's provided us so many things, we would then give back to God just a little bit of what he's given to us and allowed us to earn in the first place. It's the concept of, of giving back to God what is really rightfully his in the first place because we're just stewards. But the Pharisees, again, masters of the technicalities on this. They said, no, 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 we got it covered. I, I, I tithe some spices. I, I just gave a little bit of, you know, cumin and, and maybe some salt and pepper and oregano and, you know, I'm good. I don't have to give anything else. All that money, no, no, that, the money's mine. I, got the, I keep the money. I'm just going to give you a little bit of the spices, a little bit of, a little bit of what, I, what I can give. And again, what do you see? Loveless obedience, like we were talking about last week. He says, you strain out a gnat, but you swallow a camel. The idea of what you're, what you're clinging to, what you're doing, what you're, what you're thinking is righteous is a gnat. It doesn't mean anything. And the bigger things of the law, mercy, justice, faithfulness, all those things, forget it. You don't even think about those things. The gnat being the smallest unclean animal and the camel being the largest unclean animal. Jesus, of course, proving a point from the law. Last week, we read from Isaiah another scathing report from the prophet to Israel saying, keep your sacrifices, keep your church services, keep your feasts, keep your songs. They're all noise to me. This is God speaking to his people. Why? Because their hearts weren't in it. He says, I don't care. I don't care how many times you go to church. I don't care how big the boxes are on your head that hold scripture. I don't care how long the things are on your robe. I don't care how many spices you give. Keep it all. I want your heart. I want your soul. I want you to actually be legit. I want your love. Last week, again, remembering it's not about loveless obedience, but it's about submitting to God in love because he's Lord. And that, of course, reflects, uh, reflects rather much more deeper spiritual problems. The third woe is the woe of unholiness. Look at verse 25. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. You clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but inside they're full of greed and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and the plate, and then the outside will be clean. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. You are like whitewashed tombs which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and uncleanliness. And so also outwardly you appear righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. The third woe is the woe of unholiness. Jesus gives two examples in this. Uh, the cup that looks clean on the outside, but if you look in it, it's dirty. Maybe we have certain members of our family that can wash dishes and maybe they don't wash them so completely as other people, right? You kind of look at that and you're like, oh, well, I'll give them a B plus for effort and quickly wash it while they're not looking again, right? It doesn't make any sense just clean the outside of the cup. You have to clean the inside of the cup. You go to the cabinet, you take a cup out, you look at it, it's like, well, that's still dirty, right? Same thing with the tombs. He says, it doesn't make any sense. What are you going to do? Put nice white Benjamin Moore paint all over the front of it, right? Dazzling white so it looks wonderful and clean and fresh. What's inside? Death. Dead bodies. 
the stink of death. And he says, guess what, guys? That's you. That's who you are. Outside, you look really good. You got your robes, you got called rabbi, and you got your, you got your things on your head and your arms and your, your little fringes. He says, inside your heart, you are evil. You are sinful. You are unholy. They, pre- they present themselves to be the holiest of the holies, but inside they are unholy. The fourth group of the woes is the woe of being an enemy of God. Look at verse 29. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you blind, or you build, rather, the tombs of the prophets and decorate the monuments of the righteous, saying, if we had lived in the days of our fathers, we would have never taken part with the shedding of blood of the prophets. Thus you witness against yourselves that you are sons of those who murdered the prophets. Fill up, then, the measure of your fathers. You serpents, you brood of vipers, how are you to escape being sentenced to hell? Therefore, I send you prophets and wise men and scribes, some of them whom you will kill and crucify, and some you will flog in your synagogues and persecute from town to town, so that on you may come all the righteous blood shed on the earth, from the blood of the innocent Abel to the blood of Zechariah, the son of Barachiah, whom you murdered between the sanctuary and the altar. Truly, I say to you, all of these things will come upon this generation. Jesus calls them out for being the worst kind of hypocrite, maybe. An enemy of God. Persecutors of his people. And yet they say, what? They say, no, 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 no. We've built huge monuments and statues. Like, check out our Jeremiah statue. Like, that guy was the best. But meanwhile, their great-grandfather killed Jeremiah. And Jesus says, are you kidding me? You think I'm supposed to believe that? Just because you built fancy monuments to the prophets, your own fathers killed them. Your own fathers rejected them. And you're going to reject them too because you're rejecting me. They're an enemy of God. They claim, oh no, no, we would have never murdered them. And Jesus says, oh, but you would have. And Jesus tells them he knows this to be true because they will kill the greatest prophet of all himself. They will kill his followers that come after him, the ones that will be sent in the name of Jesus to proclaim the gospel. One commentator wrote, just as members of God's own people had murdered God's spokespeople in the past, so they would do so to Jesus and his followers. They will murder Stephen. They will murder James. They will murder the apostle Paul many of the other disciples. Just like they murdered Abel, the prototypical martyr. And Zechariah told to us in 2 Chronicles 24, you will continue to act as an enemy of God, persecuting those who I will send after me. You will flog them in your synagogues. You will chase them out of town. Some you will have crucified by the Romans. And it's all part of the plan, my plan, where what? Did you catch that? Jesus says, so that the guilt will end up where it should be on you. You will not escape judgment in this. He says, how will you possibly escape hell? You can't, because judgment is coming for you. And then Jesus drops this bomb. He says, truly, I say to you, all of these things will come upon this generation. All of the Bible reflects actual history. There's different genres in here, but, but this stuff, I hope it's like 
the cookies on the bottom shelf here, but this stuff actually happened. Like we believe that these things happened in the Bible. And so sometimes we actually even get extra biblical verification of the things that happened in the Bible that we're pointing to. And what Jesus is pointing to is in 70 AD, the Roman army is going to finally have enough. And they're going to kick in the door of Jerusalem and they're going to kill over a million people and they're going to burn that city to the ground. And Jesus says, that will happen in this generation. And that's my judgment. Once again, Jesus will use governments and empires of the world as tools for his wrath and his judgment. Just like he used Assyria, just like he used Babylon, he's going to use the Roman Empire. And we know this to be a historical fact, but we know from the word of God that there's more behind it. There's judgment that came. And we'll talk all about that in chapter 24 when we get there. It's going to happen. It'll happen within years. It'll happen within your lifetime. Woe unto you. Here's the point. Hypocrisy will eventually be judged. Hypocrisy will eventually be judged. This is unbelievable. Jesus himself, not only coming to seek and save the lost, but he's also coming to pronounce judgment on the Pharisees for their hypocrisies. They were judged in 700 B.C. and 538 B.C., and they're going to be judged again in the year 70 A.D., defeated and wiped out from their own land. You can go to Jerusalem today, and you can still see the piles of rocks that the Romans left when they destroyed the temple. It's still there. All the people he's talking to, they'll see it with their own eyes. They will experience it. God will once again use an enemy army to bring judgment upon his people. So what about us. As hard as it is for us to hear, we need reminders of God's judgment. We need reminders of God's judgment in correlation with hypocrisy. The reality is, church, we are all hypocrites in some way, shape, or form. And the things that we think about, we profess to be Christians, and yet we think about things that are not pleasing to the Lord. The things that we do, we profess Jesus with our mouth, but then go out and deny him by our actions. The things that we take refuge and comfort and solace in, yet we say it's Jesus that is everything. Which type of hypocrisy maybe are we most prone to struggle with? Is it the hypocrisy of false teaching? Are you straight up just believing things that aren't scriptural? And worse yet, are you propagating them to others? Is it the hypocrisy of traditionalism over God's glory? Do you rely on your interpretation of the Bible and think that's going to fly? As one commentator writes more, he says, do you rely more on biblical minutia than practical ministry? Are you straining out gnats and swallowing camels? Are you majoring on the minors? Emphasizing the tiny things in the Bible and neglecting the weightier matters like truth and justice and mercy and faithfulness? Is it the hypocrisy of unholiness? Do people know you're a Christian, but then in your own lives, is your holiness lacking? Would we all be shocked to put videos of our behaviors up on these two screens? The thoughts that consume our lives, the things that we look at online, or whatever it is, we can go on and on and on. Is it the hypocrisy of unholiness? 
Again, we see this in the news, men who pastored churches, the horrific revelation of sexual misconduct or abuse and spiritual abuse and pride, and yet what do they do? They just pick up their stuff, they go start another church somewhere else. Beware. Is it the hypocrisy of being an enemy of God? We surely see this beyond our church walls. We see this in our own town. People with church outside their name, but yet preaching heresy from the pulpit, if they preach at all. Direct heresy. There's no false church, there's no evil, there's no hypocrisy that'll get away with anything because it will eventually be judged. We mistake God's patience and mercy and grace for an absence of judgment. Judgment does come. Make no mistake, your hypocrisy will eventually be found out, and if not repented of, hypocrisy will be judged. Jesus tells him this will end. It will end in this generation, but it will ultimately end at his return, at the work, after the work of the cross and the tomb and all of that in world history, and Jesus returns. This doesn't give Jesus any joy. It actually anguishes his soul. Look at the last part. This is Jesus again saying, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often I would have gathered up your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings and you would not see your house is left to desolate. For I tell you, you will not see me again until you see blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Can you hear the broken heart of Jesus in this? Can you hear the lament and the anguish? He says, it didn't have to be this way. But you rejected me. I would have gathered you up like a mother hen. But you rejected me. And now look, look at your house. Look at the temple. It's desolate. You know why it's desolate? Because I'm no longer there. The presence of God is gone. He's no longer here. He's, he, Jesus is here for the new covenant, the new covenant in his blood, where the presence of God will then be with every single believer through the Holy Spirit living inside us. He says, but as for that building over there, it's just a building. And sooner or later, it's going to be a pile of rocks. He says, I'm no longer in there. Jesus laments, you could have experienced the care and the love of God if you'd only have turned and acknowledged your hypocrisy, your pride, your spiritual blindness, and you're not going to do that, and it'll be the end of you. Things, of course, from this point will move rapidly to the point of the cross where we're narrowing in on the last several chapters of, of Matthew. Events will accelerate, but all in line again with the plan of God that Jesus will be handed over, he'll be tortured, he'll be crucified, he'll be executed, but he will rise again, he will ascend back to the Father, and he will come again. He will return again. Some scholars think that what Jesus is referring to here when he says, you will not see me again until blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord is, is his resurrection. I lean more towards his second coming because that's when everything will be dealt with. That's when the final judgment will happen. Jesus quotes Psalm 118, 26, a triumphant psalm of blessing Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We will bless you from the house of the Lord. He already made his triumphant entry into Jerusalem. Resurrection is going to happen. The ascension is going to happen. Jesus is saying this is going to continue. You will still not get away with anything. Even if you do somehow escape the Romans, I will return. 
and then every single person will stand before me and your hypocrisy will be judged. He knows that they will continue in their hypocrisy and their pride until it's all taken away from them. He knows their hardened hearts and that they will still not repent. And so hopefully I can pull this together in this big idea. Judgment for spiritual hypocrisy can be avoided by gospel humility. Judgment for spiritual hypocrisy can be avoided by gospel humility. The spiritual hypocrisy of the, the Pharisees and the scribes will be their downfall. And Jesus ends verse, his, this verse 39 in his, his rant by lamenting that fact. He takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked. I would have gathered you up if you only would turn, if you only would repent, if you only would be humble. Church, this needs to be all of us. We need to turn away from our spiritual hypocrisy. We need to turn to Jesus in gospel humility. I originally had the big idea as judgment for hypocrisy can be avoided by humility. And one of the things they, they taught me in seminary is if, if your big idea or your main point of the sermon could fly in a Jewish temple or a mosque or something like that, it's not a good big idea. Because what is that? Judgment for hypocrisy can be avoided by humility. Okay, cool. That sounds very humanistic and secular. I think I'll do that. But that's not the point. The point is judgment for spiritual hypocrisy can be avoided by gospel humility. When we realize our hypocrisy, when we realize our spiritual blindness, when we realize our spiritual pride, we then humble ourselves where? The cross of Jesus Christ. And we are we realize that only through his sacrifice can we be forgiven. Can we be restored? We need to be on the lookout for the subtle ways in which we seek self-exaltation because eventually we will be humbled. We need to search our heart. We need to confess sin. We need to walk in grace. We need to be on the lookout for all the subtle ways that we are hypocrites. We have a few to think about. False teaching, traditionalism over God's glory, the hypocrisy of unholiness, the hypocrisy of being an enemy of God, where are we most prone to hypocrisy? What do we do when we realize we have walked in spiritual hypocrisy? We do what Jesus laments that the Pharisees didn't do. Run to him. Confess our failures. Remember the cross. Remember who we are in Christ Jesus. And receive the grace to walk in faith and be legit. Make no mistake, church, spiritual hypocrisy will eventually be judged, but before that happens, run and keep running to Jesus in gospel humility. Father, we thank you for this passage, and as difficult as it is, it is a weighty passage. It is a passage, Lord, where we're confronted with your anger for what the Pharisees and the scribes have done to your kingdom to your message, rejection of, of him. And Father, we pray that you will strengthen our hearts to face the conviction where we need to face the conviction. Lord, to walk out our lives in humility in light of the cross. Would you strengthen our hearts to do that for your glory? We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.